Today we begin a new sermon series that I'm really looking forward to. For the next eight weeks, we will be exploring the lives of the Bible's three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But our approach is going to be a little bit different than what I think has been done historically because we're not only going to talk about these three men, we're also going to talk about their families, their wives, their children, their siblings, their slaves, their slaves' children. Now, the reason we're doing this is because none of these men acted alone. When God called Abraham, he was also calling Abraham's family. He was calling Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael. When God called Jacob, he was also calling Rebekah and Rachel and Leah and their sons, Benjamin and Joseph. This is a reality that often gets overlooked. Nobody lives within a vacuum. The people around us deeply shape who we are. I was reminded of this yesterday. I was watching Coco Golf win the U.S. Open. Wonderful moment. Now, the first thing that she did when she won was to head into the stands to find her family. And the interesting thing is that everybody kind of understood that this is what was happening. It didn't seem odd that in the middle of this tennis match being watched by millions of people around the world, everything would stop and this one player would go into the stands to find her family. She went and she found her mother and her father and they hugged and they cried. And it was heartening because it demonstrated that although many things have changed in society, we still understand the importance of family. That we are not who we are except by the influence of these people around us who nurture us. Now, of course, the caveat has to be made that families can also be extremely difficult. And people are very hurt by their families, more hurt by their families than by anyone else in the world. And we're going to see this, too, in this series. We're going to see family members treating each other very badly. And yet we'll see that God chooses to work through these flawed people to carry out his story of salvation. Now, as I was talking with Rebecca about this series, we decided that a good image for this entire series would be the image of a tapestry. And on the cover of our bulletin today, I have put the image of a tapestry. This is something that uh, was made in the 16th century. It's called The Return from the Hunt. It's quite a beautiful work of art, but here's the point that I want to make. The tapestry is a single image. It's a single scene, but it's composed of thousands of individual threads, all of these threads that are woven together and knotted together, and that is so much like the human family. We are individual threads, but our Creator has woven us together into a single picture. Like it or not, we are knotted together, and so we're going to call this sermon series Family Ties. Of course, part of this, part of this is a nod to one of my favorite childhood TV shows, But it's also because the idea of being tied together is such a vivid way to talk about what families do. They connect us in ways that are both life-giving and also constraining. And Abraham's family vividly demonstrates this. If you haven't read these stories lately, I think you may be shocked when you see how dysfunctional these families were. Over the next eight weeks, you're going to see betrayal and attempted murder and adultery and deception and manipulation, and yet you are also going to see people who are capable 
of love and healing. And the overarching theme is that God takes these tattered threads and he weaves them into a single picture, which is the story of the Bible. And that process reveals a reality that's going to be at the center of this entire series. It's the reality of grace, because only grace can explain why tattered threads can come together to create a beautiful picture. And it's not just some random picture. It's not some unimportant picture. This is the main picture. This is the story of existence. If you walked into God's castle, this is the tapestry that you would see right on the wall. The first thing you could see, this is the picture that he is most proud of. And therefore, the heart of this family story is one of grace. It's that God could have, maybe even should have used some other thread, but he didn't. He used this thread, these imperfect lives, to bring salvation to the world. Now, all of this is an introduction to this series. We begin the story at the moment that God calls a man named Abraham. The reading is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's, Lot, his brother's son Lot and all the possessions they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for your heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So the story of this great family begins with a single call. Abram, you are to leave your country. Leave everything you know. Leave your family of origin. Leave your possessions. Leave your traditions. Leave your beliefs. Leave whatever dreams you had about what your life was supposed to be like and come to a new place that I will show you. I find that last line rather amazing. God doesn't even tell Abram where he's being called to go. He says, go to the land that I will show you. Imagine putting the kids and the pets and the suitcases into the car and leaving home forever. The kids ask, where are we moving to? And you say, I don't know. actually know. God will show us. Now you can see why Abram is known for his faith. For whatever reason, he trusts that this call is the one he can give his entire life to. And let's, let's be totally honest, in our day and age, this seems like the height of foolishness. Why would anyone give up their plans and their comfort and their dreams of the future to follow a God they can't see and who may not even exist? For most people, it just doesn't make sense. But what I think this story is showing us is that this apparently foolish quest is actually the only path 
to real life. And I want to spend the rest of my sermon arguing that following God's call is still the only way to a truly meaningful life. And along the way, I want to make three points. Number one, how God's call offers meaning. Number two, how God's call reveals our identity. And number three, how God's call is based ultimately in his grace. So let's start with meaning. Some of you know the works of Viktor Frankl, the great psychologist. He argued that this is the most basic need that we have. Beyond all other things that we need in life, the one thing that we need most is meaning. And what I have seen as a parent, that this begins with children. Any parents in the room know that when children are young, there is one question that they ask over and over again, why? All of my children went through a phase in which they basically asked this constantly, and as a parent, it, it can grow tiring. But I think it's actually kind of profound because it points to something fundamental. Kids have this basic inborn need for meaning. They want to know why are things the way they are, and they will pursue these questions until they get to the very bottom of reality, beyond which they can go no further, which of course is God. And in my own experience with my three kids, I have found that this really is the only answer that stops the questions when we finally get to God. It's a hypothetical conversation. Dad, why are we going on a hike? Because it's a beautiful day and we should be out in nature. Why? Because it's really healthy to breathe the air and look at the trees. Why? Because God made nature and he wants us to experience it. And the questions stop. (laughs) Oh, that's why. You see, now we've arrived at the floor of reality. Once you get to God, you just can't go any deeper. And kids, of course, intuitively know that God is real. And they want to be reminded of a few simple facts. God created them. Therefore, their lives matter. Therefore, their choices matter. Because they can either be doing the will of this creator who made them, or they can be moving away from this creator. And that brings us right back to this question of being called. Because to be called by God means to make your life about doing the will of that creator. It's to say, I'm going to live for God. Whether I'm a teacher or a pilot or a nurse, I'm going to follow God in my life. Now, when you do this, you have meaning. Now you know why you're here. You are here to grow close to God and to follow him, no matter what occupation you have. And this is an important point. Because not many people are going to get the kind of clear instruction that Abram got. But that doesn't mean that you're not called. The reformers made a distinction between what they called primary calling and secondary calling. They understood that not many people are going to hear a clear voice like Abram did. And that's why the vast majority of people are going to keep their secondary callings. They will be nurses. They will be teachers. They will be accountants. These are secondary callings. But the primary calling, the thing that gives you ultimate meaning, is that you have decided to follow God wherever he leads you. This is a liberating insight. And I I think people have this misconception that if they don't drop everything and become a missionary, they're somehow not good Christians. But it's interesting that when you look at the scriptures, the greatest leaders of the church always continue to work in secular fields. Look at Paul. No one had a deeper impact on the history of the church than Paul. But did you know that Paul was never a professional church worker? All of his evangelism was volunteer. Professionally, he was a tent maker. 
And when he would run out of money in his travels, he would go back to Tarsus to work in the family tent business until he had enough money saved to go back out there on the mission field and preach the gospel. What the reformers said was the mark of a true Christian is not that they leave these secondary occupations, it's that they perform those callings with as much energy and skill as they possibly can. And one of my favorite quotes about this comes from Martin Luther. He said the job of a Christian shoemaker is not to put little crosses on shoes. Rather, it's to make good shoes because God is interested in craftsmanship. In other words, God created this world and he cares about this world. And if you want to have integrity, you will do good work in whatever field you're in because that pleases God. And so if you're an accountant, you don't really have to put crosses in the corner of all your spreadsheets. But if you do your work well with integrity and diligence, you are going to be living into your primary calling, which is following Jesus Christ. And what I'm getting at here is the second point in my sermon, which is identity. Because being called by God doesn't just provide meaning to us. It actually shows you who you really are. And this is a big point today because so many people today struggle with identity. And I have noticed over the last decade that there has been this growing movement of thought that says that identity really is just a social construct. There is no fundamental identity. You can decide to be whoever you want to be. You can create an identity. And I find this tragic because it means that people don't understand that they already have an identity. God made them who they were when he created them. I mean, think about Abram. Even his name reflects his identity. The name Abram means father. Now, later, God will change his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Now, the interesting thing is that God gave him this name while he was still childless. When he was an old man and he had begun to doubt this promise that he would have a child, God doubled down. Abram, I'm actually going to name you Abraham because you're not just going to be a father. You're going to be the father of entire nations of people. Of course, Abraham could have said, no, that's not who I am. I choose who I am. But if he had said this, he would have denied the truth. His identity had already been established. And that means that the Christian never says, I'm going to just invent myself. I can be whoever I want. The Christian says, my job is to discover who God created me to be and then live in accordance with that identity. Now, maybe that sounds a little constraining. But I have noticed that for people who actually come to know that their identity is rooted in God, it is the most liberating thing imaginable because it means they can stop trying to define themselves. People who try to create their identity inevitably become exhausted and confused, and those identities they create by themselves are always unstable. They jump from one identity to the next. They try out different masks to see which one fits. I'm this. No, I guess I'm this. No, I was wrong. I'm this. And, of course, there's a lot of pressure because you keep having to explain to people who you are and how that's different from who you were last month. But your identity is grounded in the love of God, and therefore, if you can accept that, this endless identity performance can come to an end and you can simply be who God created you to be. Now, I'm not saying that this is easy because following God means you have to make his will your priority, but the wonderful thing is that the hard work has already been done and that's my third point. This has to do with God's grace. If you look at the contract that God makes with Abram, 
We call this contract a covenant. You'll notice something very odd about it. It's very one-sided. Eight times in this contract, God commits himself to certain binding promises. Meanwhile, Abraham says nothing. God says, I will give you land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Again, he says, I will bless you. And this time he adds, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless the families of the earth through you. During this entire litany of blessings and promises, Abraham is silent. It's the most one-sided contract in history. If God had a lawyer, he would never allow him to sign this contract. Because God is saying, it's all on me. And that means that this covenant is based in un conditional love, meaning no matter what you do, God will love you. He might not always be happy with you. He may put things in your life that will frustrate you in order to correct your path, but there's nothing that you can do to stop him from loving who you are. And this is a tough one for people because some people have never experienced unconditional love. They don't even really know what it is. And of course, the difficult truth is that Sometimes this comes from families, which is sort of the point of this series. Many families, for whatever reason, are not able to provide unconditional love. But when you finally experience it, it is the most transformative reality there is because it means you are accepted not on the basis of anything that you've done or haven't done, but simply as who you are. And it means there's always the possibility of turning back to God. There's always the chance to start over. God is guaranteeing the contract of your life. It's like a young person who's trying to get a lease. You know, maybe some of you have been like this early in your lives. You just graduated from college. You have no credit. You have $100,000 in student debt. You work at a coffee shop. And the landlord says to you, I can't rent to you. I'm sorry. It's too risky. But your parent comes in and says, I'll guarantee them. Whatever losses they incur... I'll pay. Can you see how your entire life is held in God's hands? This is something that we forget so easily. We, we just forget that he even exists. And we think that even if he does exist, we don't really need to listen to him. But to use an image that is one of my favorite, we are like turtles on a fence post. If you see a turtle on a fence post, there's just there's one thing that you know. He did not get there by himself. You did not create yourself. You already have an identity. God created you and has given you specific gifts that nobody else has. These moral failings that we all struggle with are not a barrier for your new life because while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. Your contract is guaranteed, and therefore you're never going to know why you're here unless you answer this extraordinary call to give your life to God. It is not easy, but it is simple. Think of Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee and encountering these fishermen who would later become his disciples. He said something extremely simple to them. It was only two words, follow me. Of course, this then became very complicated for them because they had to leave what they were doing and start a new Life, it was not easy, but it was simple. And that's what we're all called to do, not to be perfect, not to have all the answers, but to trust enough to answer that simple call, follow me, 
That is what Abram did. He had no idea where this voice would take him. He just knew he could trust it. And as we will see in the coming weeks, he was right about that. God was faithful till the end. Let's end in prayer. God, give us the stillness and the serenity to listen to your call and then give us the courage to follow it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.